You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Dear Heavenly Father, you are beyond really what we can ask or think. You are beyond our thoughts and our words. And yet, visiting us as one of our neighbors in your Son has shown us that whatever cannot be captured about you in our wildest thinking and our most imaginative moments, the Son of God uh, came down and lived here and showed us how he thought, what he said, the way he said it, the way he acted, and none of that, strange as it may seem, is above us. That is, we were created to be that way, and, and, and we didn't follow through correctly. And this dear brother Christ came down and showed us that had Adam and Eve not sinned, we would be behaving very much like he behaved. Um, perfect man. Uh, and standing in, in a very remarkable way, for perfect women. Not above them, but with them. The Son of God, our friend, Yesu, friend of sinners, Jesu meine Freude, Jesus my treasure. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus, friend of sinners. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus, Lord of all, King of kings. All of these things, all of these ways we have come to know you and about you, with the exception of your godhood, are ours for possession through the very work that he did, not just in dying, but rising from the dead with the body that we'll once have, soon have, who knows, Um, ascended, making things ready, promising us uh, a room in the large mansion, promising to be eternal light, promising us that there will no longer be need for temple because the triune Godhead is our temple and will be. But back again to this wonderful fact, this 33-year-old fact of Christ's manhood personhood whom we love so much. Um, We pray that as we try to talk a little bit about worship, we will understand that he did that on earth better than anybody has ever done it as a man, as a human being, as a person. Therefore, for us to stretch our wings 
and to be Christ-like the way we're commanded to be is not to try to jump into Godhood as much as it is to realize what a perfect person did on this earth. And without our being perfect, which of course you know and we know so well is impossible in our present state, we still have the friend whom we are to emulate and whom, in the words of a St. Thomas Akemis, Kempis, whom we are to imitate. So we pray that you will guide our thinking, our questions, our answers, our suppositions, our guesses, uh, the overwhelming mystery that puts the close to anything we try to say during these few time, a uh, few minutes together. We say these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, it's hot in here, and I don't know whether these windows can be cracked. Do any of you know? Uh, I, I, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. Uh, if you think it would be wise to let a little fresh air in here, huh? Uh, that would be kind of good. Would you find that convenient? Okay. In my day when I was a when I was uh, growing up in what was known as the evangelistic song services, they were always on Sunday evening. And on a hot, muggy night in Pennsylvania or any other place pretty much east of Denver, um, it, quite often the song leader, uh, who by virtue of his enormous uh, aerobics as song leader would become more uh, quickly sweaty than the congregation. <laughs> And he'd usually say something like, well, let's all stand on the last stanza, and while we're standing, the ushers will open the windows. It's kind of close in here. <laughs> so, in a sense, the last hymn, the last verse of a hymn in many song services was simply meant, uh, sort of in a Pavlovian way, time to open the windows, time to get some fresh air. But uh, if that becomes uncomfortable for you, too cold, don't be uh, inhibited in putting the window back down. Um, I, I, in, a, in, a, in a way, I am really puzzled about what to, <clears throat> what to uh, say with you, not to you, uh, because uh, there is a sort of verbal inundation uh, that during this conference has not only uh, been our portion, but in the last 10, 15 years, a lot of serious thought has been given uh, to the subject of worship and the subject of unceasing worship. Incidentally, I did not choose the title for this session, even though it's part of the title of a book I wrote. This is not a bookselling event by any stretch of the imagination. And I want you to know that. I'm not here to propagandize nor to requote myself uh, and to somehow make an already bad back worse by reaching around here and trying to pat it. Um, it's, it's a time when review of a sort, paraphrase of a sort, imagination of a sort, um, all of these things that take us beyond anything uh, and, and anywhere we're now positioned 
if that's possible, it, it's certainly desirable. Uh, so I'm stuck because of the of what I know you already know. Any one of you could get up and give a pretty darn articulate uh, uh, presentation on unceasing worship. You've been uh, and are being indoctrinated. Uh, I know that. And uh, so in that particular way, anybody who gets up here pretending to talk about unceasing worship is bringing coals to Newcastle. Um, is bringing, bringing pizza to a pizza restaurant. And um, that's why I'm puzzled. I, I, in a way, I just love to throw the whole meeting, not out the window, but up to discussion and let you guys go at it and let you guys talk with yourselves, um, talk with me, let me talk back a little bit. Um, and I hope, uh, even though it might be unwise just totally, totally uh, quickly to say, are there any questions, it would be unwise not to uh, allow this session to be uh, under your ownership and under your, the kind of questing, therefore questioning, that uh, you simply, at your ages, have to be doing. You are really, in the best and most Christ-centered work sense, a work in progress. Uh, and that's another cliche, we're all works in progress, yeah, of course. And then we get up and act like we're not, uh, or uh, we're works of regress, uh, uh, mouthing out the progress stuff. Now, if I say it that way, and then go back to what I just said a minute ago about the certain fact that most of you can articulate a theology of unceasing worship, I just want to ask you if it's orthodoxy without orthopraxy. I, I don't know how you practice that, but I think you all know what it means. Am I right? Uh, uh, Carson did a good job. Uh, was it yesterday? Yeah. Um, with John 4, which is a key passage, he did a good job with Romans 12, which is a key passage. Uh, he did a very good job. Now, was that new news to you? Huh? Huh? No. Uh, and in a way, he summarized a book that I wrote. Now, does that make me good? No, it makes Carson good. <laughs> now, yeah, you know what I mean, as my father used to say, and I think you do, uh, when he was scolding me. But um, uh, so I'm struck in conferences like these about what we know and how we can articulate it and thou, and in contrast or comparison to how we act therefrom. So let me give you an analogy. Um, and this analogy is as much about human creativity as it is anything else. Marriage, theology, business, 
or whatever. And before the analogy pops up, I want to give you a, just a brief something to think about about another thing you all know very well, namely that we are imago dei. We are made in the image of God. But lately I've been giving a lot of thought to what that really means. One way of saying it would be to say that we, being created in the image of God, mandates for us a way in our finitude of behaving the way God does in his infinity. So that if you look at God's attributes, naming them one by one, uh, there isn't a one of those attributes in which we do not participate, but in a finite way. If God's real full name is love, and if you were to read, let's say, the theology of, of, of a von, von Balthasar, a brilliant Roman Catholic theologian, a book he wrote called Love Alone is Credible, you would want to end up by saying, above all, God's name is love. And if you were to follow through on what von Balthasar has said, God's glory is his love. This is not very Piperian, nor Reformed or Genevan, because God's glory in those respects, and I'm not take, talking them down, but they're limited ways of talking about God. The majesty, the overwhelming glory, the holiness of God, uh, generating, uh, uh, I think, something that I see a little bit too much of here, and in the current praise and worship music, what I call transactional negativism, where you're always worried about your sins, and you finally work your way to the last verse, and then something was purchased for you transactionally. God, uh, or Jesus bought something for you. We were ransomed. Transaction, transaction. Uh, the devil was pacified. Transaction, transaction. An angry God was, was made happy. Transaction, transaction. And we spend so cotton-picking much time on sin, uh, in order to get to forgiveness, that we don't spend any time beginning with forgiveness in order to celebrate the quick extraction from sinfulness that we enjoy in Christ, even though we continue sinning. And I get tired of that, frankly. I get very tired of it. And uh, uh, I think those of you who are songwriters and song collectors had better get on what, if, you, if you're brave enough, happy enough, and secure enough to read uh, Robert Capon, the, Angli the Episcopalian priest from uh, Port Jefferson, New York, to get to the other extreme of understanding that faith is not this transactional thing of working your way into enough assurance so that you'll know you're forgiven. Uh, it's, it's, it's attending a party by faith, and, and, and faith is the act of enjoying what's already true. And um, have any of you, do you, any of you read Capon? He's scary, is he not? Um, because his, even though he claims not to be a universalist, and he, he is not, because he knows there's a real hell, but it's different than the one we uh, paint, uh, uh, courtesy of people like Dante and others uh, of the medieval and renaissance uh, thing, who, who really, really did pretty good Techno, uh, te, you know, technical jobs of uh, of pre of pre 
of prophesying, prophesying about what all the techno giants and evil people, the Vaders, look like in today's thing. I'm not knocking Dante. It's just that, it, you know, it was pretty negatively loaded. Capon, whom I'm not here to promulgate per se, I just say, if you want to be stretched, read some of Capon. If you want to be stretched, read von Balthasar's book, Love Alone is Credible. Um, read outside of the Calvinistic Reformed Genevan paradigm. Uh, why? Not to forsake it, but to find out how limited it is. How absolutely rich and free and transcendently other the uh, uh, other theologies are that use the same scriptures that Calvin did, that exegete with another bias beside the one Calvin used. Don't forget he was a lawyer, and lawyers think certain ways. Um, I'm saying all of that to get back to this idea about God being an imitable person. We are to be like him, even in our fallenness. So therefore, being created Imago Dei is not some cute little thing, we're made in the image of God. It is profoundly provoking in that we are made to behave the way God does. So take any of his attributes and squeeze them into the finiteness within which we live. Take any of his attributes, we have them in finitude, power. Love, knowing, not omni-knowing, not omnipower, but knowing, power. Go on the attributes, go through them. Imago Dei. And then think of this. This is, this is sweet. This is just plain sweet. Think of three words. Anybody somebody and somebody in particular. Everybody is above all anybody. That is, we are exactly, this is, this, this is interesting. Our anybodyness is that we are imago dei. Nobody is more imago dei than anybody else. Nobody is less imago dei than anybody else. We are a world of anybodies. The glory of anybodiness, not namelessness, not anonymity, the glory of, of anybodiness that is made in God's image. And if we want to talk, for instance, about loving our black brethren, our Asian brethren, the terrorists and all, just think of them as anybody. Then if we express either acceptance or prejudice, but especially a prejudice in many seductively handsome forms, it's not an affront to civil rights. It's an affront to the character of God. We're spitting in His face. We're spitting on His image. We're spitting on anybodyness. Then, and only then, you can use the next word, somebody. Somebody is the gift of individuation. Not individualism, but individuation. Whereby 
every image of God co-equal in that station is turned in to an inimitable, inimitable uh, individual. And once you talk about individuality in the sense in which God puts a special fingerprint on anybodyness, then you can think of individuality as not something we strive for through false mechanisms, but something that we have a priori at birth that will either screw up or use or both and uh, even use redemptively. Then when you get to the third aspect, particularized somebodiness, then we start talking about gifts. Everybody is equally image of God. Nobody is a clone of anybody else, individuation. Within individuation, we have this remarkable plethora of giftedness where some people can study maggots digging their way through a corpse without puking, <laughs> thanks be to God, and somebody else can play the complete works of Bach by memory. Somebody else is very good at digging ditches, and on and on and on. So when you look at God's handiwork that way and then talk about steer that gently and gradually in the direction of worship we have to then say something like this if God created us to behave like he does it would be fallacious to think that he needs us to worship him and I get so tired of hearing people say we were created to worship. Essentially, that turns God into a narcissist. He needs to be worshipped. No, he does not. Somebody made it clear yesterday about the difference between uh, uh, God needing worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, which is different than saying God needs a worshiper. But as long as he's going to be worshipped, by golly, we better do it in the correct way as images of him. And through Christ's redemption, making it possible for us to be more like him than it was before we came to Jesus, even though we're still uh, squirting our ink in the wrong direction. Uh, but particularized anybodyness these individualized reflections of the image of God has to mean that if we are to behave like God, we have to ask ourselves, how does God behave? Now, I don't use the word behave in a Freudian or Pavlovian or any other pseudo-scientific way. I'm talking about action, being, who he is, what he does, how he does it. And I've discovered lately, I'm late on this. I'm very late. And it's because I haven't read the early church fathers enough, among other things. 
I'm very late in, discover, in, 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 in moving from a list of God's attributes to the question of how does God act within himself, even without us? Yes, we're in his image. But what does, what does the Trinity do? What did the Trinity do before we walked and talked? What does the Trinity do? The Trinity loves itself. The Trinity admires itself. The Trinity is saying, guess what, to each other. The Trinity is in submission to each other. Somebody's called the Holy Spirit the, the uh, what? The, huh? Well, no, somebody, uh, the, the, the bashful member of the Trinity, that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, in fact, uh, who was it that wrote a book uh, around that? Uh, Dale Bruner, who uh, he's a Presbyterian. He's written a pretty good commentary on the book of John. He also has written a book on the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the bashful member of the Trinity, uh, deferring to the King of Kings. Well, that's, that's dumb. That's dumb. Or, or uh, the King of Kings deferring to the Holy Spirit, a pneumocentric Christology, or a Christocentric pneumatology. You know, which way are you going to lean? Well, the Trinity doesn't lean. The Trinity is in perfect conversation with itself, him, herself, her, triune self, <clears throat> all the time. And um, do they pray? Well, of course, they talk to each other. Uh, they're praying. Do they kneel? Yes, but not to anyone outside of themselves. They don't bow their knee, but they submit to each other, which is a very quiet way of bending the knee. The Trinity, to use a word that I came to love in that book that I tried to write, the tr Trinity from the eternities continually outpours itself to itself without any need for a water supply outside of itself with which to continue or start its outpouring. The, out the Trinity in and of itself outpours to itself in complete bliss, complete joy, It's a kind of a dance that we know nothing of because there are no partners in that give and take sense. We, we can't imagine it, but start thinking about the Trinity in its own behavior within itself, outpouring itself to itself in ever so many ways in a Pentecost that we know nothing about because it's, it's an infinite kind of Pentecost. Self-disclosure, self-love, self-obedience, self-creativity. No need for a mountain. No need for a galaxy. Creatorhood. Creator doesn't mean I have to create. It means that within who I am, I can infinitely keep creating that which I already am 
and that which I already talk about and share and dance about and so on and so forth. So, the outpouring God is our model for worship. If he outpours, we are to outpour. He, wouldn't it be something, and maybe we'll be allowed to see this sometime in the eternities, how the Trinity does this beautiful thing called being the Trinity without any exterior help from anything else, and we're allowed to sit and watch this. The eternity outpouring itself to itself in total, unfettered purity and love and joy. Now, when you think of the fountainhead of worship that way, then uh, you can begin to, let's say, pour a certain amount of finite sense into the, uh, the definition that I tried to concoct. And again, I'm not selling anything. I'm just trying to tell you how I've been thinking. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I ever could be in light of the God whom I've chosen or who has chosen me. And I, I, I struggled and struggled and struggled in that definition to, to find a link. And it was the word outpouring. It finally, finally came to me. Worship, image of God, is the continuous outpouring, image of God, as to who we are and who we can become, the only thing that God can't, He is, but He's not becoming. See, there's the finite thing again. So on and so forth. Of all that I am and all that I ever could be in light of the God I have chosen, idolatry, or the God who has chosen me, not predestination. It's bigger than that. We were chosen in Christ from the eternities. I refuse to systematize that word chosen. You might want to. I'm not going to. I'm done with it. Uh, uh, and I'm not an Arminian either. <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean, the, all of these things are cockeyed in and of themselves until they broaden out and sharpen each other with their own perspectives. And they're, they're still failing. And to whom do you return? As Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where we return. Systems, yep, they work in the same way an automatic transmission works for Subaru and another one works for uh, Chevy. Uh, they get the gear shifted. But this one, you know, I don't like the gear train in that. Let's choose this gear train because et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I mean, <clears throat> we're systems and process and bias oriented. Okay, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I could ever be in light of the God I have chosen all by itself, that's pure Arminianism, all by itself, that's pure idolatry, or who has chosen me all by itself, that could be idolatry, because one of the weaknesses of idolatry is that we choose something and then we make believe that it chooses us. That's the essence of idolatry. What I shape turns around and shapes me. Isaiah said that. He just, he just splattered 
people's faces in Isaiah, what, 41, 2, 3, 4, in through there. Behold, a, a, a woodsman goes out in the forest and cuts down a tree. With half of it, he hires somebody to, uh, to carve, and the guy gets tired and has to stop and rest, and he keeps carving, and so on and so forth. He gets this carving done. I, I now call it God. With the other half of the wood, we cut it up into firewood, and I sit down and cook my soup on it. And, uh, and I'm warmed and say, aha, I'm warmed. And uh, read, I, it's stunningly sarcastic, holy sarcasm in Isaiah <clears throat> about the essence of idolatry, which is inverted worship. It's still worship. And it is unceasing, or could be. Idolatry is nothing other than the act of shaping something I've imputed power to, which then, because I've imputed power to it, turn around, turns around and shapes me. Which means, therefore, this being true, by that I mean biblical, not bestian, but biblical, this being true, <clears throat> the only thing we can infer from the fall was that Adam and Eve when they fell, did not cease worshiping. They continued it, but worshiped falsely. They continued their worship and then chose creature over creator and continued their worship. Therefore, another therefore, it's impossible to say that nobody does not worship. Everybody is being shaped by something either of their own construct or shaped by the very God who through Jesus Christ is slowly reshaping us and giving us plenty of information and plenty of power to turn worship right side up so that the creature is in submission to us and we are not in submission to creature. Now I could jump very quickly from there into discussing music if I wanted to. Music is in the creational hierarchy we've got creator, creation, creature, creativity. God is more than what he makes, A. What he makes is not the same as God himself. What's that called? When we believe that God is his creation. It's pantheism. Okay. God is not what he makes. Everything that he makes is in submission to him. He is sovereign. We are made in his image. We've gone through that. We are made to behave the way he does. God in Genesis gave us quite a bit of authority, did he not, over everything that he made. That's A, part A of being an authority. Part B is that whatever we make is in submission to us by virtue of that very creational hierarchy. When we make music, who's in submission to what, what to whom?
It is less than we are. We are in charge of it. And if there's anything that is tempting, it's to turn that around because we talk about the power of music without talking about the power of the human being. If the human being is turned upside down and loves to impute power to things less than him or her, then you not only have idolatry, but you have inverted worship. You're back into golden calfism. If, on the other hand, the imago dei, continuously outpouring, now turned right side up in Jesus Christ, subject to the true and original creator creation creature creativity hierarchy, now knows that he is in sub or she is in submission to God as a true worshiper, crafting things that are in submission to him or her. Therefore, the music we make has no power. It's that simple. It has no power unless we impute it. And what we can do as musicians is to make the mistake by, by overloading ourselves with music over, we make the mistake of, of, of imputing power to music without ever saying we're doing that. It, it takes it to himself and if we're not itself, and if we're not careful, it'll overtake us. And then we start talking about the equation of music making and the worship of God. When I, we, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is material you've gone over. I know you know it. But that doesn't mean a, 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 a tinker's ding-dong to me unless you practice it through and say, what I'm doing in worship is in submission to me, and together we are in submission to the Holy Spirit whose omniscience, omnipotence, power in and through Christ is such that if we threw the music away, we'd still raise our hands and say, Alleluia. Um, I, I just cannot say that enough. I remember speaking at my alma mater. I used to teach at Nyack College in New York. And I was asked back to speak. And, and um, prior to my speaking, uh, now I'm going to be sarcastic. Uh, you've heard me tell you how much I love you and how much I enjoy being with you. So let me be sarcastic a minute. Uh, there was the usual musical falter before I got up to speak you know, preparing for the speaker. Um, and I looked over and I, I was ticked off uh, because a thought came to me, not about the music, I like a lot of this music, I do. But I turned to the chaplain of, the, of Nyack next to me, he used to be a classmate of mine, I said, hey, I said, I know you're, I, for, I said, I forgot to bring my Bible. I've got prepared remarks, but I forgot to bring my Bible. Can you run upstairs to your office? It was above the chapel. And, and, and quick, get me, he ran up there, and they were still singing, because they hadn't reached their half-hour quota yet. <laughs> and uh, so I knew I had plenty of time. The sarcasm continues. And uh, not necessarily the truth, but the sarcasm. And um, so he brought the Bible down, and so I was introduced, and blah, blah, blah. And I got up, and I said, dear friends in Christ, I said, I want to read one of the most electrifying passages of Scripture to you in all of what my granddaughter used to call God's Bible. <laughs> She'd say, Grandpa, can I get up in your lap and read God's Bible to you? 
Which is an interesting take on the relationship of Holy Scripture to, to God the Word, but that's another subject. <laughs> Can I read God's Bible to you? So I got up and read a, a big hunk of Romans 8. You know, you can't do better than that. And I'm a fairly good reader, and I have a fairly good voice, and I read what I always pray for when I read Scripture, authority. And at the end of it, I said, do you realize that you've just heard the most electrifying truth that you can ever lay your hands on? This is the Word of God. And I said, you sat there like dummies. I didn't see any hands go up. I didn't see anybody respond. But I said, just a few minutes ago, your, your fannies were doing circles in the wind. <laughs> And uh, everything was all bright and good. And I know you hated to stop. But then I read the most electrifying truths to you that you can ever hear, and you sat there like dummies. Um, now, you're clever enough to know that I wasn't entirely on target when I said that because I was not condemning singing by any means. I was not condemning enthusiasm within singing by any means. But what I was questioning was the inability of many Christians to gyrate unless they have music, to gyrate not just with their butts, but with their spirits to gyrate. Uh, it's sort of like uh, uh, Carson yesterday morning when he said, this is the word of God. And one or two of us said, thanks be to God. And, and he chided you, didn't he? Because you just sat there like dummies. <laughs> but boy, let a praise chorus do it. Autographs, CDs, worship, all this kind of thing. Remember, I'm being sarcastic to a point or to a fault. But I'm also talking truth, behavioral truth. Okay, now I'll end by saying this. Jesus Christ, the perfect worshiper, and I tried to say something last night that I'd never said before in my life, that his perfect worship was captured in two words, my God, when he was forsaken eternally. And he still hung on with that one lonely pronoun, my. Greatest prayer of faith in all of Scripture. Because at that point, as a man, Jesus had to be exercising faith. He had nothing. He had no father. But he said, I'm going to claim you anyway. I'm going to hang on to you anyway. Dad. So, Jesus Christ came not to do anything else but to redeem our worship. Amen. To turn it right side up. Yes, creature, creator over creature. Creature over things thought up. The hierarchy restored. Then, let all the world sing in every corner, my God and King. Because now, we come to understand that we sing because we're at worship and we don't go to church to worship. And I know you've heard this, but let me say it again. 
but we go to church as continuing worshipers to keep doing all of those things that we should have been doing all week long. And it doesn't take anything to start that up. And if it does, thank you, Golden Calf, for once again visiting this blessed congregation. Uh, we're, we're splitting our options. We're placing our bets pretty safely. We're worshiping in spirit, but we got this little thing here that uh, sort of is shaping us, helping us along. Some, something that we can touch, lay our hands on. And that's all idolatry that the Golden Calf was, is just getting God tangible. Getting him close down, we touch it and feel it. Okay, thank you. You're the one, and, that, and here's the clincher. You're the one, this is our God, who brought us out. So they weren't proclaiming a new God. Therefore, God in Deuteronomy has to, said, has to say, uh, and I want to take issue with something that was said yesterday without uh, quoting the person or naming the person, um, uh, that when we, when we sin, we stop worshiping. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sinning right now, and I'm not, I'm not, I know I've got an ego, and I know I've got you right here. I'm a good speaker, I'm a good improviser, I know that. That's a fact, and I need not deny it, but boy, can I worship it, and can I enjoy it. Um, and uh, so, when we're turned right side up Christ, uh, in Jesus, we don't stop sinning when we worship or stop worship when we sin. We, we, we are worshiping God sinfully. Because, isn't it interesting that when you read Deuteronomy, uh, <clears throat> God chided those people uh, uh, about taking false gods. And what did he say? You shall not worship me this way or you shall not worship me in their way. What did God do? Well, he was showering with grace when he said, I know you're worshiping. You're taking a crack at me. But it's, you're doing it wrongly. He didn't say you're not doing it. He said you're doing it wrongly. So the presence of our fallenness, I, 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 I want to get maybe rid of the word sin for a little bit only because we are so sin conscious um, that we have to work our way toward the last stanza gradually in a transactional kind of um, poetic meter instead of you know there's a, there's very little empty tomb in Christian worship music very little empty tomb very little dancing very little joy but until we work at it, till we get there transactionally through some theological mechanism or another, call it what you want. How many theories of the atonement are there out there that, that are decorations of Jesus saves? I'm not castigating. I'm saying your perspectives have to stay sharpened and sharpened and sharpened and sharpened as you look at single perspectives, single theologies, single methodologies, and whatever. The church is really very good in the Holy Spirit at talking to itself. Um, so, you know, I've, I've gone for far longer than I, I, I should have. Let me stop there and just bust it over. Let's just see if, there, if you want to react in any way or, or uh, offer something that I've missed 
or try to correct something that you think I might have said improperly or poorly. Uh, I'm a sinner. Yes, I used that word again. Um, I, but I only said that to protect me from being tempted to think that I've given you the pure stuff. Uh, there's some purity in it, but I didn't do it purely. So, what's in your heads? Yeah. This morning you mentioned uh, Scott Haniel and some of the other guys yeah. um, about the new moral yeah. music argument. Any thoughts to yeah. giving rise to that? Yeah. Uh, you mean what's given rise to what? The revival of the morality of music. It's never been absent. Every once in a while it has ways of popping up through intellectual mechanisms. And Ken Myers has a good intellect. Um, through, through intellectual uh, sharpness, it has popped up. It's as old as the church is. It comes from some kind of desire to find within inarticulate things the ability to articulate things that they can't articulate. Spectrum of meaning. Let's just mess with this a minute. First of all, it's based on the idea, uh, what I'm about to say is based on the idea that, that God gave us two gifts, procedural gifts. One was the gift of the absolutes. God is truth, do not mess. God also, that's the world of truth, of, a, of which alone he, he alone is author. And any addition to that is dangerous. Or if something true is said outside of Christian system, it's still God's truth. You know that statement. All truth is God's truth. Okay. The world of the absolute he gave us. Don't mess with it. Then he gave us this great world of relativity. It's called the creation. Everything in the creation, there is no fixed point anywhere in his handiwork. Nothing is more important than anything else. Nothing orbits around anything else without being orbited around. However you look at it, God's handiwork is a vast expression of complete and free relativity. He wrote that into his handiwork. He separated himself from his handiwork. I am the word. I am the truth. I make these things. They vary in beauty in some people's estimations, but I call them all good. A cork, an orchid is a little bit prettier to some people than a duck-billed platypus. But you can't mate an orchid with a duck-billed platypus because lady platypus will look for the best-looking male platypus she can find. Therefore, within the kind called platypus, there are degrees of beauty. Ah, he's prettier than, she, than he is. She's prettier than she is. This dandelion is prettier than that dandelion. This sunset is prettier than that sunset. But a sunset is not more beautiful than an anemone or an atom or a quark. Beautifully relative. The whole world spread out for us. What, does we, what do we do with the fall? We like to mess that up. And we begin to relativize the absolutes and we begin to absolutize the relativities. Now, when you think of that paradigmatically, you're taken through a whole assortment of things 
but you have to test the assortment against God is word, God makes things. Psalm 19 does an absolutely exquisite job. Uh, I won't write this up here. I'll, I'll, I'll just, because uh, I want to go to any other question. Psalm 19 does a beautiful job of saying, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork, day unto day, utter his speech, and night unto night knowledge. And you say, Well, best, you just contradicted yourself. Uh, no, I didn't, because what does the psalm say next? It says, in a very confusing uh, distribution of Hebrew, it either says there's no place where their sound is not heard, or other translations say there's no sound at all. They're, they're speechless. If it's true that there is sound from the creation declaring the glory of God, the only thing the creation is doing in saying that, I'm, he says, I'm pointing. I'm declaring his glory. Because I can't, I do not participate in his glory. That's pantheism. I declare what I uh, I declare the one to whom you go to if you have questions. But then the psalm purifies a little bit of sort of slop in the Hebrew and says, but, implicit, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And what else does it say after that? The testimonies of the Lord are, are wise. Making what is it? Or something making wise the simple, more to be preferred than gold. More to be preferred. Back to the relativities. Okay, if you if you begin to build a, a theology of artifact, and an artifact is anything that somebody makes uh, with with a reason for making it. Think of it this way: everything on the face of this earth is an artifact. We're the only ones in Mago Dei. Economic systems are artifacts. They are dumb and powerless until we articulate the economic systems that we've thought up and then apply them in a certain way, but they can't self-apply. Right? We live in a world of complete relativity that if we're not careful, we will invert and call the wrong things relative and the right, uh, the right things relative and the wrong things absolute. So. I go back to what I call a creational aesthetic to want to deal with those who try to impute causal or moral power or something godlike in the design of forms and things like that. And once, once you see that attempted, you find an interesting reversion into a philosophical model instead of an exegetical one. So I, I, with due respect to these folks, I, 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 I don't think they exegete well, and I think they have a skewed hermeneutic. Um, and I have to leave it at that, because I love them and I have a great respect for their spirit. The fascinating thing, to carry this one step further, is that in some of the manifestations of causal uh, Christian music, let's say the kind that's coming out of Bethel Church in Redding, California, uh, in a sense out of fire choir, groups like that, where music, the exegesis that's used to defend that comes out of one scripture, David playing his harp to Saul, and he got better. Um, 
tested against the rest of Scripture, tested against the doctrine of creation, tested against the absolutes and the relativities, and so on and so forth. And then test it against the fact that uh, when you sit down and play the radio, after you've hum all, come home all crapped out from work, and you turn the radio on, you feel better. Fine. Music doesn't have causal power. You know, it, it, so I, I better stop there. Um, huh? Does that help a little bit? I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but at least it, it opens the discussion into a primordial substance, namely the difference between absolutes and relativities. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I have a question. In the, um, in the world of relativity, mm -hmm. um, did, could you talk about in the, in the unceasing worship your, uh, your metaphor of wine and lemonade uh -huh. at the end and, yeah. and how that fits into the realm of, uh, of uh, relativity? Uh, tell me that again. I, I'm getting hard of hearing, and I'm sorry. sorry. In, uh, at the end of unceasing worship, yeah. where you talk about wine and lemonade. Oh, yeah, yeah worth and value and, and all that. Uh -huh. Can you talk about that in light of what, in light of the world of relativity? Okay. I, I think I tried to make the distinction there. That's a long time ago. I think I tried to make the distinction between intrinsic worth and, and relative value. In other words, wine and lemonade both have intrinsic worth. A, a $100 bill and a penny both have intrinsic worth, but they have differing values. And so you can assign a hierarchy of values to things that have equally intrinsic worth, but then you have to make the decision as to what the value comprises. Is it a causal value? Is it, is it a value that has to do with, uh, uh, instead of how I use the wine, instead of saying that, it has to do with how the wine uses me. So uh, I don't know whether I'm getting to it or not, but uh, uh, could you want to push that further with a sentence, not a question? Yeah, sure. The, uh, it, it just seems like the, um, with what you're describing there in the world of relative, the world of relativity, there not being any sort of um, categories or, or, or systems of, of beauty, that, that everything is, is beautiful in itself. Uh, there are degrees of beauty within the s themselves. Okay. Yeah, within the kind. Uh, uh, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess I was just trying to uh, figure out how that contrasted with mm -hmm. the, the wine lemonade mm -hmm. metaphor that you'd set yeah. up. It seems like the wine lemonade um, categories that you, you had created w would, uh, it seems like you were saying that there is um, greater and lesser beauties. Mm -hmm. Only with regard to the contextual value, okay. not to intrinsic worth. Yeah. Okay. Another way. Let me get back to this for a minute. Does, is this interesting, or do you want to jump to another subject? Somebody tell me quick. Okay. If I were to put, oh, let's start this way. If I were to ask you, um, well, let me let me give something away right away. To me, human language is the only way. To articulate truth fully and unequivocally. And even then, human language is a fallen artifact. It's shifty, it's fragile, it's manipulatable. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Roger's Thesaurus to tell us 22 different ways to say pretty. Okay, given the fact that truth is articulated most 
beautifully and effectively through human speech, period. Next question is, using human speech, what form of human speech or writing is used when you cannot afford to have what you're saying mean more than one thing? Name some literary types. You cannot afford for it to mean more than one thing. Don't think of the scriptures yet. Legal, a legal brief. A legal brief. A lawyer cannot afford to have semantic battles ready to be fought within the brief. What about a scientific treatise? You never talk about pretty butterflies. In other words, you, there are very few adjectives in that which cannot afford to mean more than one thing. They're nouns and verbs. Now, I, I'm sort of giving some, something away. What form of human writing or discourse cannot afford to have what is being said mean only one thing? Huh? Poetry. Scriptures. What book comes quickly to your mind that really says can't afford to mean but one thing at a time? What book? Not what promise. No, that, that, that cannot afford to mean only one thing. You got it backwards. Yeah. Le uh, Leviticus. You cannot open a can of worms with anything but a Sears and Roebuck can opener. I mean, that's Leviticus. Uh, without, uh, I'm not making fun of it. I mean, it, it, things are, pass us by one thing at a time. They mean one thing at a time. And you're absolutely right. The Song of Solomon is a book that is riddled beautifully with polymeaningfulness. We can infer with dignity out of the reading of Song of Solomon a very uh, uh, miscellanied kind of eroticism. We can infer that and not be wrong. And the early fathers also inferred out of that a Christological model whereby this erotic poetry is an articulation of the love of Jesus for his church. And it's beautifully done. Why can both of those things be done? Because of this love for a sanctified ambiguity, controlled uh, uh, under sovereignty, ambiguity, polymeaningfulness. So here we have the most accurate thing with which to articulate truth called human speech at, at one end of a, what I call a spectrum of meaning. So let's just say speech over here. But then, having said that, we have to get down this way from uni, unilateralism to polylateralism. Within this, this very thing right here. Now, any good exegete, any good hermeneutician is always somewhere in this, irrespective of the book or passage they're dealing with. Can't be escaped. Otherwise, we'd only have one concordance. I mean, sorry, one commentary. Uh, and it's not been written yet. Okay, over here, what is the artifact that is totally incapable of articulating truth, let's say? 
music. Absolutely bar none. But if you did this, there are kinds of music that seem to mean certain things. There's a very famous piece of music written in the early 20th century called Pacific 231 by Arthur Honegger, a uh, Swiss composer. It's a classical composition based on uh, the start and the run through of, of a locomotive. And it's quite pictorial. And then you have all of these things, operas and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And then you get down here and um, you've got a piece of music that you can't associate with anything at all. It's fresh out of everything. You don't know whether to be angry or whether to like it or what. It's not articulating anything. It's just so on and so forth. Then in between, you can put all other Im uh, a, a human expressions. You can take the visual arts. You can take literature. And you can move that. I'm, I'm being sloppy now. You can move things gradually this way uh, and forms of expression this way or, 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 or that way. In the visual arts, let's say, if somebody paints a battle scene, they're painting deeds, aren't they? It's a deed. It's not worded, but it's deeded. On the other hand, somebody does this and gets three million bucks for it. <laughs> I'm not making fun of it because this could be very good. <laughs> it could be very good because remember, God was the first abstract artist. Why? Because the first elephant didn't look like another elephant. There wasn't one to imitate. So he was really the first abstract artist. Let's not think that he was the quintessential realist copying an elephant in order to make an elephant. Lesson one in 21st century art. <laughs> and lesson two, quit painting barns and chapels as if Kincaid, the Nazarene, uh, that is contemporary Nazarene, had a corner on visual truth. <laughs> Forget it. There I've disclosed a certain bias. Have I not? <laughs> so at any rate, when we play with these spectra, or with items within that spectrum, we enter into a beautiful, beautiful, God-given ambiguity. But boy, over here, don't frack around too much. Don't mess around too much. And if you do, understand the difference between this and this. Um, 4.30, you want to quit? What's your question? Yes, sir. That then why the Lord deals with visual arts differently in the scriptures than he did and remains silent on the auditory art. Please say that again again. I is that the reason why the Lord does speak to the use of visual arts where he does not speak to the use of specific auditory arts? He he, he does give boundaries to the use of visual arts. Where? No, you shall not make a graven image. No, it's not a boundary. That's about an attitude. Now, you probably are, uh, and I, this is not, uh, I'm not castigating what it says. Uh, are you into the regulatory principles of the scriptures? Not necessarily, no. Um, no, no, I'm not trying to push you negatively. Right. Do, you, do you personally accept paintings of Jesus Christ, even though God said you shan't make a graven image? Yes. 
I used to, and I've, I've shifted, I've kind of repented out of some of that, mm-hmm. actually, because mm-hmm. of that reason. It could be answered a couple ways. Either we're, we're playing fast and loose with Holy Scripture, or we understand graven image to be a, a, a description of a function rather than the artifact itself, or we believe somewhat in, in a very dignified, God-driven progressive revelation. It's interesting to me that the Islamic people, who, who their art is not filled with images, but they have crafted some of the most incredible designs that, that we can imagine that approach imagery through design. Fascinating. Not that they're trying to violate the commandment not to do graven images, but this, 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 this urge to create and the fact that a human nose also looks like a turnip, you know, uh, on some people more than others. It, 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 uh, you know, where, how, how do you go from one to the other? But if you do believe in the regulatory principle to one degree or another, then it's probably true that you would not allow dance or theater in public worship <coughs> because they're not mentioned as being approved. That's another subject. Uh, other questions? Yeah, What's I, the role of emotion in worship and how we bring emotions? Emotion. Emotion. Yeah. How do we bring the, um, our emotions under the lordship of Christ in the context of yeah. corporate worship? Yeah. By imitating Christ who had emotions. Uh, first of all, you begin there. He wept. He certainly told jokes. He laughed. Um, he was a free man. Uh, so <clears throat> that doesn't answer your question. It sort of widens the perspective <coughs> Excuse me, of the question. Emotions, absolutely necessary. Music is a hugely emotive art. Holy Moses, it has to be. It is. It doesn't have much else to do because it can't articulate propositionally. Well, yes, it can. When Bach writes a fugue, he's creating a proposition that he follows through to the conclusion of the fugue, but it doesn't say Jesus loves me. It just It's a fugal proposition. So it is propositional by expressing itself within its own terms, but it can't express that proposition outside of those terms. Okay, <clears throat> but given the fact that music is hugely and wonderfully elegantly emotive, primitively emotive, sexually, so on and so forth. I go back to the creator-creation creature thing. I'm in charge. I'm not going to let my emotions go rip-roaring off the way and blame it on to Jesus or Satan or drugs. Um, uh, yeah, be emotional. Raise your hands. Get with it. Just be sure you don't uh, be Pavlovian about it and raise them the same time at the same word in the third verse of the same worship song which I saw happen many times here. Uh, it was almost like, <coughs> I'm not making fun, <coughs> like children's motion choruses that I grew up with. There's a motion for every word. And um, does that help a little bit? Boy, emote, emote, but you're in charge. So who is in charge? The leader who is, who is picking the songs and writing the progression? Depends on the worship leader's worldview. Depends on the worship leader's worldview. If you buy, buy, for instance, the Vineyard Arts Fellowship model or the Bethel model, you are going to try to create behavior with the way you do chord progressions, uh, motions from one um, piece of music to another. You're going to play an idolatrous romanticist. 
Um, you can do that. Heck yes, I know how to do that uh, with 12-bar uh, with blues. And yeah, sure. But what you're doing is just perpetuating the idea that, that you're managing worship or that the music's in charge of the people who, by virtue of their created hierarchy, should not submit that way. And that goes as much for a Brahms symphony as it does for Jesus Loves Me. Does this help? Anything? Yes, ma'am. If you believe that the Bible tells you that, then you'd be wrong to depend on people to tell you differently. Now that sounds cute, but that I, I'm trying to honor your belief, with which I disagree, but I'm still trying to honor it. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, read, read good Episcopalian theology, <laughs> read, read Lutheran theology, uh, uh, read beyond the regulatory uh, establishment to find out how they exegete scripture. But let me tell you this, it's still going to be a matter of your conscience, which has to be respected. I got called on the carpet uh, a few years back by the music committee of a church I uh, played uh, in, in New Jersey. I was organist and choir director, which is not an easy task <clears throat> to do in the first place. They called me on the carpet and they said, uh, you know, I think by that time I had my doctor. Dr. Best, we're doing, we don't, uh, you know, you're just not leading us into worship with your music. And I think I remember saying something like, well, that's not my job. Um, my job is to make offerings of worship to the Lord with the hope that I'm communicating something to you, but not in a causal way. Therefore, and I said this very kindly, if you want to get rid of me, please do. Because I'm talking out of my conscience. <clears throat> I, I, see, I was not aesthetically browbeating them, which I could have done. I'm very good at that. <laughs> and I'm not bragging. I have to be. I'm an artist. Um, but as soon as I mentioned the word conscience, things changed because I found out later that there were some people that were having conscience struggles over infant baptism. And immediately they said, oh yeah, this guy, he's really trying to be honest. We might not disagree with him. And I kept my job and had a great time thereafter, not because I manipulated their heads, but because they understood me to, in a very minor way, not to be compared with old Martin Luther, uh, when he said, I, here I stand, I can do no other. But it's the same paradigm. So do not be ridiculable if you want to hang with that position. Let me say this about dance and public worship. It's pretty sterile, even when it's practiced, because we're so scared, so afraid, so scared. Sound like a little kid. I'm not scared of you. My, my dad can beat the holy poop out of you. I'm not scared. I'm not scared of you. Um, where was I? Um, no, wait, 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 no, I'm serious, I'm serious. I, dance and public worship. 
Dan, Dan, we're so afraid of sensuousness. We're afraid of eroticism, and when I th- and I say, God thought that up for goodness' sake. We didn't invent eroticism. We've 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 messed. We, 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 somehow we've forgotten that, that God had this great streak of freedom when he made, above all, the, the desire to have children be accompanied at least at the beginning with pleasure. Um, and I'm, I'm serious about that. But then he somehow uh, non-regulatorily allowed us to say, well, it's fun anyway. It's beautiful. It's joyous. There's an elegance to it that I thought up. I thought up. And when I see uh, Christian dance troops, no, I'm serious now. I, I, I'm trying to think on their behalf. Where they're limited to one garment, it has to go clear to the ground, and their gestures are pretty much clones of each other, whatever the subject of the dance. I'm sorry for them because they have a, a respect for the human body in its sensuous, gorgeous, structural elegance where dance is the language of the art form. It is the language of the art form. And if art covers a lot of territory, then the dancer somehow should be able to do that. But that means we have to retrain ourselves. We are so sexy-minded as Christians. Now, I'm not going to get into the subject of homosexuality. I refuse to. But one of the things that bugs me about all of these debates is we can't get sex off our minds. All we do is throw holy water on it and talk about it as much as anybody else, perhaps more, because we've thrown holy water on it. But it hasn't changed the sexual questions. And I'm convinced that the American Christians have sex way too much on their mind. I'm not talking about lust. I'm not talking about lust. But those are the sins we hop on. We hop on them real fast. They're measurable. They're observable. And we think about it all the time anyway. Now, I'm not telling you positionally what to think. I'm simply saying, let's get it off our minds for crap's sakes and start thinking about other things that really riddle the church, like pride and unbelief and gluttony, for goodness sakes, where we can't see our bellies for our, our belt, uh, belt buckles, or our belt, <laughs> belt buckles for our bellies. And I'm, I'm one of these characters who, who's had a problem with weight all his life. And I am proud and I'm ego-centered and all that really sinful stuff. That's where I'm getting off the subject and I'm, getting, I'm meddling a little bit. I'm not stating a position except let's get it off our minds. Let's talk about how lovely Jesus is. How lovely Jesus is. What else? Yes, sir. So would you say that if done in a spirit of excellence, all of the arts could be equal with music in creating an atmosphere of corporate worship? I, I don't think the arts are to create an atmosphere of corporate worship. I think they're to, the, the, that we're to create the atmosphere of, holy, of, of corporate worship through, through, through the spirit within which we're free to use all the arts in their emotive power. I, I want that paradigm right side up. I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, shooting you with an arrow. Oh, I used Mm-hmm. Well, let's learn to think beforehand. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I know what you mean, and I love you for saying it that way. Um, uh, the arts are just kicked all over creation in the church. We don't know, you know, does this art witness? Does it, does it say Jesus saves? No. Does the, do, do the Rocky Mountains say Jesus saves? No. Well, God made them. No, they don't say that. Go to the maker. Find out. The artist says, yes, this is emotive. Go to the maker. Go to Jesus. I'm, I'm articulating something about God in a truthless way or a semi-truthless way. This is semi-truthless, the battle scene. Or truthful, rather. Semi-truthful. Um, same thing with Christian drama. If we're going to explore the counsel of God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin in Christian drama, then let's not hide anything. We don't have to be pornographers to uncover everything. We have to tell the truth. And if we can't do that, we don't use the art form rather than to dilute it and make it into an angel food cake version of what it means to be a prostitute. Okay? Anything else? Yes, sir. Yes. So as a music educator, why is it important that our people know how to read music? Because they'll learn it faster. Yeah, they'll learn it faster, and, for, and, it's, a, and it's, a way, it's another language to learn. Do you realize, oh, no, I don't mean do you realize, as if to put you down. The most important music man in American culture, whose musical philosophies with children are still being practiced to this day and become, are the seat of the Baptist Emphasis on children's choral music. And Baptist choral music education is one of the models that secular educators like to emulate. Lowell Mason, the singing school tradition in New England, the hymn writer. And uh, read some of his writings about literacy. The interesting thing about musical literacy is you don't have to be, you don't have to think in music to sight read as a non-musician. You learn to read positionally. And the laws of, of traditional classical harmony are such that you'll know where to go anyway. Especially when, uh, who was it, was castigating some of you in his, in his songwriting class, uh, what's his name? Keith. Keith, yeah, was saying, hey, you know, they know the chords. <laughs> there are only three of them. <laughs> yeah, the, boy, uh, my, my dream, for you folks is not to see you give up your style. I think you need to invent within it more than you're doing. But my dream is to see every local church, given the technocracy or the technological tools we have now, to create its own local songbook with its own local fingerprint, expressing its local languages and hungers and thirst, and spiral bind them so you can edit the heck out of them when you find out that they're becoming at ease in Zion and they want three old favorites all the time. Because that's what you're doing in your oral tradition. The, the, the song literature of the average worship and praise church is probably about 20 or 30 tunes, if that. Uh, you're hearing Eden here with these inventive worship bands and your singing is electrifying. Nothing like it in any church, unless you go to Wales, 
or Ireland, where, where singing is part of the red meat. But back to this, literacy, it's not to become a snob. It's just to learn how to read music. And because our ears, uh, oh, oh, let me go back to one thing about anybodyness. I didn't say this. The glory of anybodyness is that at base, anybody sings, anybody paints, anybody dances, anybody dramatizes. That's what kids do. Anybodyness. So all we have to do is just keep perpetuating that. The church is a beautiful place to educate, incidentally, not just evangelize. Thank you very much. Thank you.